0: Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: to the Lord in prayer as we look at his word this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you again, acknowledging Lord, that left to our flesh, Lord, that the spiritual things contained in your word are foolishness to us, Lord, and that we cannot understand them or discern them, but Lord, by your Spirit's enabling, we know that you can illuminate truth and Father, uh, reveal yourself to us. And so we we thank you for the gift of your spirit and for the gift of your word. And we pray now that you be honored, Lord, that my words would be in accordance with your scripture and your truth, Lord, as you have given it to us, and that the people's hearts would be built up through this time together. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 9 is no doubt uh, a, a difficult passage for many and Contains some of the uh, very deep and mysterious realities of the Gospel of God. And I think of uh, Peter's comment in Second Peter that Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. And this is the Apostle Peter saying that, and so I think we would agree with Peter that there are things in the Scriptures that are difficult to understand and that may uh, raise a lot of questions in our heart and our mind. And last week, as I said, we started this study looking at uh, what is sometimes called the doctrines of grace, or the five points of Calvinism, wondering what in the world is this? Where does the scripture speak of such things? Or do they speak of such... Does it speak of such things? And we looked last week at our depravity. What condition is lost man in? What was the result of the fall of Adam and Eve's uh, disobedience against God? And we saw that that action of Adam and Eve brought uh, death upon humanity and upon creation and that the the fall was not merely uh, in part but it was total that that we are corrupt in every part of our being uh, left to ourselves that sin has so affected humanity that we are dead in our trespasses and sins Paul says and so we looked at that last week and um And a little bit of the history behind some of these doctrines and we talked about the the acronym of TULIP that is sometimes used to to kind of contain or help us understand the the doctrines and so last week was uh, Total Depravity and uh, we're moving on to the U then which is Unconditional Election and looking at what in the world is this and uh, what the scriptures have to say about it. And as much as I know that some of these matters can be controversial, and there's been a lot of discussion about them lately, uh, again I want to encourage you that we do not want to be a people who avoid difficult subjects, but rather we, we we dive into the Word of God and we trust that all that God has given us in His Word is for our good. And as as Paul said in Second Timothy three sixteen, that all Scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And, and this means even some of the more difficult portions of Scripture that we might naturally want to avoid, like Romans chapter 9. So, uh, I think one of my favorite, you know, these this series of doctrines, um, some might think, well, what's the point in, in looking at controversial matters? Uh, I think when you understand that these Doctrines have to do with the, with the gospel, the way in which God saves, the way in which the grace of God comes to us and finds us and works in us, that it is very much worth our time and effort to study them out and to seek to understand God's word on these matters. And, um, you know, as unbelievers, we know that, um, that death is, is not appealing to us. And these doctrines expose us in our sin, but they also call us to die. They call us to die to the old man, to Adam. And uh, nobody wants to die. Everyone wants to preserve their life. And I think spiritually as well, humanity is desperately trying to preserve their life instead of coming to Christ and being crucified with Christ that we might be also raised with Christ. And so this morning as we move on to the U in our acronym there, um, you know, the the titles again can be misleading. Um, So there's oftentimes better maybe titles that could be given, sovereign election or God's choice in salvation. Um, But then you kind of mess up the nice acronym. uh, and doesn't really work anymore. So we'll just continue with that for memory's sake. But it is essentially that God has worked in salvation from from the beginning of time, as Paul will show us in electing unto salvation and it is an unconditional election and it is uh, the, the unconditional is reminding us that god 's work in our hearts and lives is not based upon Anything about us that God finds desirable, that God finds worthy, it is not because of my, you know, uh, my last name or because of my skin color or my ethnicity. It's not because of any talents that I have or or anything that I might offer back to God. That that is not the reason for God's work of grace in our lives. It is an unconditional work based upon His will. And so that is why we have unconditional election. It is as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Or in 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9, Paul reminds us again. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifest. Through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And that was 2 Timothy 1.8.9. This grace of God that comes to us. Not based upon conditions that are met in us. But according to God's own grace. Paul says his own purpose of grace. Which is given in Christ Jesus. And before we jump into Romans 9 here. Just one side note. And... Um, uh, R.C. Sproul reminded me of this this week in my studies, is that we do want to be careful because as we think about our justification, what it means to be a Christian, we know there are conditions to being a Christian, namely that we repent and believe the Gospel, and that we are baptized um, in obedience to the Gospel. And then that sense, in, in regards to our justification and the the, the um, outworkings of God's election, there are conditions. You must repent, you must believe, and you must walk in obedience to the gospel as, as the outworkings of that. But in regards to election, is what we're talking about, that which comes prior to the, uh, the, the outworkings of that call in our hearts and lives, when, when, when the Spirit of God opens our understanding, when we see the gospel as glorious, we repent and believe, Prior to that comes this purposing, this electing work of God. And uh, we see that very much in Romans 8 when, when Paul uh, says that, um, that those whom God has, has called, that he also has... Um, those who he predestined, he's called. Those who he's called, he's justified. Those who he's justified, he's sanctified. And those who he's sanctified, he's glorified. We see that, that series of events, the outworkings of our salvation. We're not talking so much about That simply about this work that comes first in the heart and mind of God of electing us and the outworkings of that. So that's a little bit of a a clarifier. Um, We're not saying that people are justified without having to repent and believe. Of course, that is the gospel call. But in the purposing of God, um, it is according to His will. So... Romans 9, we'll see if we can get through 24 verses in the next half an hour here, but likely it will very much be scratching the surface. But first of all, just to let you know where we're headed this morning, we're going to see the problem that Paul presents to us, and then his answer, and then we have three illustrations of Paul's answer, and two uh, potential objections that Paul addresses to his answer okay so we're going to look at a problem his answer some illustrations to his answer and some potential objections that people might have on this teaching so first of all what is the problem paul tells us uh, that he is thinking specifically about the nation of israel and the fact that from any physical standpoint where Paul is at living in the 1st century looking at Israel they had just crucified their messiah god had sent his own son the prophets had come they had been persecuted they many of them were put to death and now jesus sending his son and they reject the son they crucify the lord jesus christ but god being pleased by his sinless sacrifice we know raised Jesus back from the dead on the third day. And Paul is looking at the nation of Israel and he's saying... If someone was to look at this situation from the, from the outside looking in... They would think that God's word had failed. That God's promises to Abraham and God's commitment to, to establish the people of Israel as his light in the world... That somehow it had failed because they crucified their Messiah. And, and so this problem that Paul is wrestling with... Is really has the word of God failed? Because that is going to come as an accusation, and we might think this morning, "Oh, well, I'm not Jewish. I don't, I don't have direct lineage to the, the, you know, the ethnic uh, line of Abraham, and so I guess it doesn't really matter too much to me." But really, for us as Gentiles, we should be very concerned about this question because if God's word had possibly failed to Israel, to Abraham specifically here, if somehow God uh, did not keep his promises, then on what grounds would we think that God's word to us is trustworthy and true? On what basis can we stand if God's word had failed in the past to Abraham? And so it's a massive problem. And it's a problem that that we must understand uh, the answer to. And so Paul reminding us of of the the rich heritage of Israel in the beginning verses. The uh, adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the patriarchs, and even Christ himself coming as a Jewish man. And uh, this is actually a list that, that Paul began in the first chapter, and he's continuing here. But then he says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed. So here is his answer. The problem is, has the Word of God failed? The answer is, no, it has not failed. The Word of God stands and is trustworthy and true. And, and you might think, well, okay, Paul, it's, it's fine to say that, but I'm still looking at the hardening of Israel and the rejection of the Messiah. So how am I to understand that God's Word has not failed to his servant Abraham? And the answer that Paul gives is unconditional election. It is that God has from the beginning purposed to save whom He will save. And that there is the fulfillment in that sense of the promise. That there will be offspring of Abraham who, like Abraham, believe God and it is credited to them as righteousness. And everybody was assuming that this meant the physical lineage of Abraham. That it was, it was merely to be born in the, 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 the line of Abraham and that is the essence of what it meant to be the people of God. And yet Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. There are two ways in which we must understand what it means to be the offspring of Abraham. There are different ways to understand what it means to be the children of Abraham. There is the physical, natural sense in which you are of Jewish, Jewish ethnicity, that you you have the genetics, if you will, of Abraham. But then we find that there is the spiritual offspring of Abraham, the spiritual children of Abraham, who, according to God's purpose in election, um, are the true fulfillment of the promise. And so we see Paul give us three examples of God's purpose in election, three illustrations of how this has already been playing out in the Old Testament, God's purpose uh, of election standing. And again, as we think about this whole issue of God's promise to Abraham and the promise of offspring. um, Paul says in Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so you must have the categories in your mind of a physical uh, Jew in the sense of ethnicity, but the spiritual Jew, the spiritual offspring of Abraham, whose praise is not from man, but from God, and who has been circumcised by the Spirit of God within his heart through the Gospel. And in that sense, God's Word stands. And this is according to God's purpose in unconditional Election, And he illustrates it first of all, as we find um, later on in the, in the verses here, by Abraham's son Isaac. And we find he says from Israel, uh, verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so, first of all, we see this in the birth of Sarah's son Isaac. right? Because there was another son of Abraham, wasn't there? Not from Sarah, not according to the promise, according to the flesh, And uh, Ishmael was born. And yet, someone might say, well, Ishmael is also a descendant of Abraham. Should he not also be part of this covenant people, part of this people of God, this, this fulfillment of the promise? And Paul would go to great lengths in Galatians saying, no, again, it's according to the promise. It's according to God's purpose in election, not of the flesh only. And so Isaac is a demonstration of God's purpose in electing grace. That it was he whom God had determined to establish his people through, not the other offspring of Abraham. And we see um, Paul go on as the family line progresses, not only with Sarah um, having Isaac, but then he goes on to Rebekah, who also conceived uh, a son, And in the same way, we see God purposing by electing grace, unconditional election, choosing to use one of the offspring and leaving the other in his sin. And so we have Jacob and Esau as a second illustration of God's electing grace. And we find, Paul says, that that though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And God made it so clear to them that this was his work, this was his choosing, this was his design, that he reversed the, the uh, cultural norm for the older to, to uh, be the one who to receive the inheritance and the blessing from the father, and it was the younger who received it. And God is, is going out of his way to show us that it is his purposes that stand. And we find this, this unusual switch of the younger um, receiving the blessing. And uh, you remember, as Jacob comes to bless the sons of Joseph, and uh, and he he puts his hand on the younger, and Joseph's like, Dad, I you, you know your vision's getting bad. Um, you probably don't know what you're doing. You need to you need to switch your hands around so that you bless the older. And uh, and Jacob says, No, the younger shall serve the older shall serve the younger. And and he is reminding his son that God's purpose of election stands. And it is not according to the flesh. So we have the second illustration of Jacob and Esau. And this is is difficult for us because... um, And and Paul actually addresses this response. As we look at this, we might think, well, how is that fair? What what is it about Esau that that was unworthy? And we want to bring this whole issue of, of fairness into the equation... But we must remind ourselves that, as Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so no man is deserving of God's kindness. No man is deserving of God's grace. We are all deserving of God's wrath. And that is how we start. And so it's not unfair if God chooses to leave someone to their just punishment. Do you see they, they, they already are in a position of enmity with God, and God is not obligated to pull them out of that state. If He leaves them in that place of, of their sin, He has done no wrong to them. And yet we want to make man somehow neutral, somehow inherently good. But that is not what the Scriptures teach us is our starting place. And so it's not that Jacob was more worthy. We know Jacob's story. he committed as many sins as Esau did. He did some some terrible things in deceiving and lying and and uh, tricked his his brother out of his his birthright and then stole the blessing from him by deceiving his father. I mean these men were not were not without sin. It was not as though God looked at Jacob and said, well uh, he's a little a little better, you know, not quite as." Mischievous. I think I'm going to go with Jacob. No, this is according to God's own plan of election by His grace. Um, if my health was taken from me, if my family was taken from me, if all my possessions were taken from me, if my freedom, my church family were all taken from me and I was put into a prison cell and I, I died there alone, God would have done me no wrong. Do you see that? That because of our sin before God, God owes us no good gift. And what this should do in our hearts is every time that, that you receive a good thing, every time you experience uh, something, something of, of God's goodness in your life, it should cause you to marvel at His kindness. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve a wife that, that loves me, that has been faithful to me. I don't deserve my children. I don't deserve the, the health the Lord has given me or the possessions that I have. All of these things that are the overflow of God's grace and they are owing to nothing but the, the Lord Jesus Christ who has offered Himself in my place. And so when we go through difficult things, let us not shake our fist at God and think somehow He has wronged me. No, all we know from God is his grace, And so we must be careful as we consider the statement of God's choosing of Jacob and leaving of Esau, though both be physical descendants of Abraham, that God is not acting unjustly. And we're going to jump down for the the third illustration. A little jumping out a little bit. There's one more illustration that that Paul uses from the Old Testament of God's purpose and election. And this one is more in the negative sense. In verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh too is an illustration of God's purpose in election, only in Pharaoh's case that is in the negative sense. Pharaoh was not softened by the Word of God as as Moses uh, comes to Pharaoh, continually bringing Pharaoh the Word of God, offering Pharaoh opportunities to obey God's command to let his people go. Pharaoh has an opportunity to repent. He has an opportunity to obey God. And yet God, instead of um, granting him that gift of repentance, he leaves Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder and harder as the word of God daily comes to Pharaoh at the mouth of Moses and his brother Aaron. And we see God giving him over to the hardness of heart. It is not that we make God the author of sin. For we know that there is no darkness within God. But God is also free to hand somebody over to their own sin. And to instead of giving them that gift of repentance. To allow them to be hardened. That God's glory and power be displayed in them. And that is what we're told happened with Pharaoh. God put Pharaoh where he was. So that God's power over all the gods of Egypt might be displayed. All the plagues that came upon Egypt, parallel to a God that Egypt had established and and worshipped. And God uses Pharaoh as an instrument of his glory, showing the world, the watching world, that this God of Israel is God over all. And that the gods of Egypt are brought to nothing before this God. And so God's purpose and election is illustrated, even in the negative sense, with Pharaoh... Now, some will take this portion of Scripture and will try to argue that this whole issue is just in regards to nations. It's not speaking about individuals. It's simply dealing with the nation of Israel or the the nation uh, the, of uh, uh, Esau or, or the Egyptians. And, and that we can't use it to really understand our own personal salvation. And that God is simply... Looking down the corridor of time and seeing our decisions. And he's basing his election upon what we do. But surely you can see the the reading of this passage indicates nothing of the sort. All of Paul's illustrations are with individuals. He's talking about individual people and God's choosing some and not others. And... Even the the majority of the pronouns in here are singular. Um, It is a piece of play. It is a person. It it does not naturally fit with this text that God is, is simply speaking of nations somehow to get around the difficulty for us. Furthermore, Paul's whole point is that we can't look at the physical uh, nation of Israel and think that that's the basis of their own election. Paul is saying, no, you miss the point if you think it's a physical um, inheritance. There's a spiritual reality. It, It is the spiritual offspring of Abraham. It is those according to the promise, not according to the flesh. And so we must be careful that we don't try to reinterpret the text to fit our own view of God or of salvation. Um, And Paul raises a potential objection, too, actually, in this passage. And we'll look at those. The first one is in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he has just finished, again, showing that God had purposed to use Jacob and leave Esau. And that he had purposed to uh, use Isaac. And he left Ishmael, also a descendant of Abraham. And, 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 and Paul raises this potential objection. Well, God is unjust. God is unfair. Now, if Paul was meaning to say that God simply saw down the corridors of time our actions and based his actions upon that. Why would Paul raise this objection? No one would say that's unfair. That, that fits very well with how we would like things to go. But Paul raises this objection because he knows what is coming. People are going to say things like, That is not the God I love. I could never serve a God like that. That's not fair. That would be unjust of God. That would be un, un, unfair of God to, to act in such a way. Paul knows that accusation is coming. He knows that people are going to raise this objection as they read this doctrine, as they hear what Paul is saying. And so Paul answers the first objection by pointing to Exodus 33, when God reveals His glory to Moses, when He declares His name to Moses, Paul points to that passage. And in verse 15, he references it, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul says the answer to the problem of thinking God be unjust or unfair or unkind in the way that he has structured salvation is by understanding that God is free. God is free. He is free to, to save whom he will save. He is free to extend his mercy and grace to whom he will extend it, and he is free to withhold it. You know, these these doctrines are not simply minor points that we can just uh, simply agree to disagree about. When God declares his glory to Moses at, at the very center of God's glory, at the very center of his name, is the fact that God is free. He is the Sovereign of the Universe. He is not restricted by our human will. He is the one true, completely free being in the Universe. And can you imagine the audacity of the creature to turn and say to God... No, actually, you can't do that, God. Because I don't think that would be very nice of you or very fair. And I think I'll redefine your glory for you. How absurd. It's it's laughable at that point that the creature would actually think to respond to God in such a way. And yet, oftentimes, we are tempted to do just that. To reshape God... Into a God who is a little more like us, a little more palatable, a little more likable according to our own nature. But we must not. We must praise God in the fullness of His glory as He has revealed it. And people want to get all bent out of shape about free will. How does my free will play into this? Do I not have a free will? And I want to ask, what do you mean by free will? What is free will? Do we realize that we don't have ultimate freedom? You know, I might, uh, I guess there's not, no super tall buildings in Fairview. I could climb up maybe at one of those uh, grain silos or a grain tower, or whatever they're called, and, and I could say, I want to fly. And I could jump off of there and I could say, I, I will to fly. And you would say, That's absurd. You can't fly. And say, Well, I'm free. I have a free will. I want to use it. I want to fly. And you would say, No, you can't do that. Because you are restricted by your nature. Right? Or I might say I want to run 100 kilometers per hour. And I don't have to, to burn gas in my vehicle anymore. I could just run to Grand Prairie in an hour and 20 minutes, whatever it takes. And run back. And, and that's what I want to do. And I'm going to do it. Then you would say, that's foolish. You can't. Your nature does not allow that. You know, I'd probably top out at about 10 kilometers an hour or something. And that's all I can do according to my nature. And so we must define free will as the freedom to act according to our nature. That's what it means. And it applies not only physically, but spiritually. And if we use a definition like that, it brings so much clarity. Because we understand then, if we are born in in, in trespasses and sins, and our nature is corrupt, am I free? Well, yes, I am free to act according to my nature. I am essentially free to sin, however I would like. But because of my fallen nature from Adam, I am bound to that nature. And until something happens, until the gospel of God breaks in and the spirit of God changes that nature within my soul, I am going to continue acting according to my nature. God is the only one who is limitless, who is infinite, who is unhindered, who is completely and ultimately free. We are creatures and we are bound to our nature. And this is the beauty of the new birth, is it not? That that God works in our hearts by His Spirit through the Gospel, regenerating us, causing us to be born, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and that we begin acting according to this nature now at work in us, though the old man be at war at times, the new man being renewed day by day through the, the Word of God. It is a, is a beautiful uh, so helpful understanding that god's work in salvation is as deep as a new nature in christ and this is similar to what john says in first uh, sorry in john 112 but all to who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god there is this this time of receiving christ of believing of repentance and and john goes on and says who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is what, this is how Paul answers the first objection. That, that it is God's work. That he is free to give grace and compassion upon whom he will. And, and that our salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, he says in verse 16, but on God who has mercy. And so Paul answers our first objection. Objection. The second objection that Paul answers is another one that is very commonly raised about this whole issue of God's purpose and election, of God's choosing unto salvation. Um, and we find it in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You say, "Okay, well, if what I'm, what I'm understanding is right—that God is the one who, who according to His own good pleasure, sovereignly elects some unto salvation—and that as the gospel comes unto them, the Spirit of God through the gospel regenerates our hearts, grants us faith and repentance—then and others are left. Well, then, I'm not accountable." I can't be judged for anything because I don't have a choice in the matter. And people will will raise this objection. And Paul's anticipating it. He's saying, this is going to come. Someone's going to say, well then, if this is the case, I can do what I want. I'm not accountable. On judgment day, I can stand before God and say, well, I didn't have a choice. Because you are sovereign, and, and, and and I couldn't do anything about that. And Paul answers this objection by saying in verse 20, But who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul essentially tells us, you don't get all of the answers. You don't get to understand the mystery of human responsibility that we are accountable before God. We are responsible to repent and believe the gospel. We are going to justly be punished for our sin in hell. And at the same time, God is sovereign and God's decree stands. And nothing that God purposes will fail. And we might think those two seem contradictory. They cannot both be true. Um, And yet it has been said that they are like the tracks on a railroad. That both run together parallel. Man is responsible. He is accountable to God. And God is sovereign. And His word stands. And those two truths must remain side by side. And, and uh, on this side of eternity. I don't know that we'll ever fully understand. How the the mystery of, of our responsibility. And God's purpose. Uh, according to His own will work. And we need to be as Christians at times. Okay with mystery. Okay with not understanding all of the answers. Um, we do this with other things. You know, I, I drive a vehicle and I understand very little about how the vehicle works. And I'll have someone like Ted work on it for me because they understand how this vehicle works and I don't really know. But I'm using the vehicle. There's a lot of mystery there to me. Trusting that it will get me from point A to point B. And so God is the potter and we are the clay. And uh, sometimes it's a simple truth, like I think of the song Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote, God is God and I am not. And how often we should remind ourselves of simple truths like that. God is God and I am not. And that is essentially Paul's answer to the second objection. We don't get to be God, we must trust him as the potter. And so, in closing and in summary, um, as I understand it, when mankind fell into sin, and, and, and Adam and Eve transgressed the covenant in the garden, and, and creation is brought into the curse of God, and, and man is cast into a state of depravity, God had a few possible actions that He could have uh, followed through with at that point. First, He could have simply exercise perfect justice, and every person in the human race condemned for all eternity in eternal hell because of our sin. God could have done that, and that would have been just, that would have been fair, because we are guilty. Or God could have possibly, He could have purposed to save everybody, and that all of humanity, every person be rescued from their sin, be be atoned for by... The blood of Christ and, and and be brought into the new heavens and the new earth and, and nobody experienced the wrath of God. But the Bible teaches that that is not what happened. God purposed to deliver out of humanity a remnant. A body of people who would be identified as the church. Who would be identified as the children of God. The offspring of Christ. And it is not according to our will. But it is according to God's will. And this is the offense of the gospel for many. That God would do that. That he would choose a remnant. To deliver out of the justice that we all deserve. And Paul tells us in verse 22... What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles? God purposed that not only his wrath be justly displayed in the judgment of the wicked, But he purposed that his grace and his mercy and his love also be displayed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where the Gospel comes in, that Jesus Christ, very God of very God, comes into the world, and He clothes Himself in human flesh that He might share in our likeness, that He might deliver out of this fallen race, this this people who have rebelled against their Creator. Jesus comes and identifies with them that He might deliver out the objects of God's mercy. And he willingly lays down his life at Calvary. And he submits himself to the Father as the only one who can atone for sin. And the wrath of God is poured out upon the Son as he atones for our sin. And the Father there at the cross displays his wrath and his justice on our behalf for all those who will repent and believe. And at the same time extends to us mercy and grace. That has nothing to do with our worthiness, but everything to do with the God who gives freely. And because Jesus was the sinless sacrifice the Lord on the third day we know raised him to the back unto life. And he is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you, interceding that the full price for which he died would be brought to him. And this is our commission. Share the gospel. It is the means of God calling. It is the the way in which this electing purpose of God is brought into fulfillment as people hear the gospel, repent, and believe. And it is not for us to say who will come and who will not. We are called to be faithful, to share the word, to freely offer to all who will repent and believe that they will be saved and that they will be forgiven. Let us go to the Lord again. God, we know that there are infinitely more uh, things that could be said, and Lord, it will take us an eternity to search out the wonders of your ways, Lord, the the greatness of your character, the perfections, Lord, that that are in you alone, and we thank you that we have been brought to life, Lord. I pray that the wonder and the the amazement of that would never, uh, Lord, never land on us as a common thing. And I pray that we would not become arrogant or prideful, Lord, that we would not boast in the kindness we've received from you, that it would produce love for our neighbor, love for one another. It would produce a a, a brokenness for the lost world around us, desiring that they, too, know the goodness of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you be honored, that your word continue to abide upon our hearts as we go. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you were built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. Or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless.